Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 87, the Charles River Esplanade. Hi, I'm Nikki. And I'm Jake. This week, we're going to discuss the history of the Esplanade, Storo Drive, and the couple whose philanthropy forever changed the way Bostonians enjoy the Charles River Basin. This week, over 500,000 spectators will flock to the Esplanade for a Pops concert and Fourth of July fireworks. But before we talk about Helen and James Storrow's legacy on the riverbank, it's time to take a look at this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. During the first months of the Revolutionary War, the British Army was shut up inside Boston while Patriot militias and later the Continental Army surrounded it. The tiny Shawmut Peninsula that comprised Boston was ringed with camps and fortifications. We've already talked about Roxbury High Fort, which commanded the only land route out of Boston. After the British took Bunker Hill, there were soon forts at Prospect Hill and Plowed Hill, making sure they couldn't push out of Charlestown into the surrounding Patriot lines. The only threat that remained was the sea. The British had a commanding navy, which the fledgling Continentals could only barely harass with privateers and naval militias. When he took over command at Cambridge on July 3, 1775, George Washington was immediately concerned that the British might sail some of their mighty warships up the tidal Charles River until their guns could threaten the Patriot headquarters in Cambridge. After all, that's more or less how the regulars had made their initial assault on Lexington and Concord in the first place. To defend against an attack by sea, Washington ordered forts to be built at Lechmere's Point, which was the closest point to the west end of Boston, and at Subel's Point, where the Charles River narrows from the broad back bay into the narrow channel that continues up to Watertown. In a letter on November 27, 1775, George Washington noted, I have caused two half-moon batteries to be thrown up for occasional use between Lechmere's Point and the mouth of Cambridge River. One of those small forts still remains. Fort Washington Park is located in Cambridge, just off Memorial Drive, separated from the MIT campus by the tracks of the Grand Trunk Railroad. It's been a city park since 1857, when the owners deeded it to the town with the caveat that the above premises, when suitably enclosed and adorned by said city, shall forever remain open for light, air, and adornment for the convenience and accommodation of the owners of estates in said Pine Grove and of the public generally. Today, it's the only place where you can see an original fortification used during the Siege of Boston that hasn't been substantially changed. The earthworks are still readily visible, and they're accented by cannons that were more recently placed. As of May 29th, Fort Washington Park was closed for four weeks for maintenance. By the time this airs, the park should be opened again for your convenience. The park is open to the public, and it's just a short walk from the 47 bus. And for our upcoming event this week, we have the centerpiece of Boston's July 4th celebration. Having been the primary advocate for independence in the Continental Congress from the very beginning, John Adams had pleaded and coaxed, bullied and browbeaten, wheeled and dealed, until he finally convinced his fellow delegates to unanimously vote to sever all ties with the English crown. In a letter to Abigail the next day, the usually reserved John was practically boiling over with emotion. 
The second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epoch in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other, from this time forward, forevermore. He had the sentiments right. He simply misjudged the day. Though Congress voted for independence on July 2nd, the text of the Declaration wasn't approved until July 4th. It took a five-member committee, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Robert Livingston, Roger Sherman, and Thomas Jefferson, two days to put the final touches on what is now one of the most famous documents in Western history. John Adams simply underestimated the importance of the formal declaration rather than the vote for independence. The declaration was first read publicly in Philadelphia on July 8th, then made its way up and down the East Coast by mail and courier. On July 18, 1776, Boston residents heard the Declaration of Independence for the first time, when it was read aloud from the balcony of the townhouse, now the old state house. Abigail Adams related the experience in a letter to John. Last Thursday, after hearing a very good sermon, I went with the multitude into King Street to hear the Proclamation for Independence read and proclaimed. Some field pieces with the train were brought there, the troops appeared under arms, and all the inhabitants assembled there. The smallpox prevented many thousand from the country. When Colonel Crafts read from the balcony of the State House the proclamation, great attention was given to every word. As soon as he ended, the cry from the balcony was, God save our American states, and then three cheers which rended the air. The bells rang, the privateers fired, the forts and batteries, the cannon were discharged, the platoons followed, and every face appeared joyful. After dinner, the king's arms were taken down from the state house, and every vestige of him from every place which it appeared, and burnt in King Street. Thus ends royal authority in this state, and all the people shall say, Amen. Ever since, Boston has celebrated Independence Day at the old state house. You can be one of the joyful faces solemnizing the declaration with pomp and parade this year. Simply gather with the crowd outside the old state house on State Street. At 10 a.m., a costumed member of the ancient and honorable artillery company will mount the balcony, the same one where the declaration was read in 1776, and read the document in full. Even in what I believe are perilous days for our republic, there is profound patriotic joy to be found in this public expression of, in George Washington's words, the sweet enjoyment of partaking, in the midst of our fellow citizens, of the benign influence of good laws under a free government. But now it's time to turn to this week's main topic. The Charles River Esplanade serves as Boston's backyard every 4th of July, when over half a million revelers turn out for the Pops concert, followed by an incredible fireworks display. But head to the Esplanade on any summer day, and even on most winter days, and you'll see runners, walkers, and cyclists sharing the paths with dog walkers and baby strollers. You'll see statuary, the Hatch Memorial Shell, playgrounds, ball fields, and community boating. The river basin would be dotted with rowers, sailboats, kayakers, stand-up paddleboards, duck boats, and even dragon boats. It's not exactly what you picture when you hear the most famous song about the Charles River. Yeah, down by the river, down by 
The sections and boundaries of the park are outlined in the city's Charles River Esplanade Study Report. The three distinct segments that form the Esplanade Parkland are separated by the vehicular bridges that cross the Charles River. The easternmost segment, Charles Bank, extends from the Craigie Drawbridge west to the Longfellow Bridge. The middle segment, referred to here as the Back Bay section, is the area most commonly known as the Esplanade. It extends from the Longfellow Bridge on the east to the Harvard, or Massachusetts Avenue Bridge, on the west. It contains many of the best-loved features of the Esplanade, including the Hat Shell, Community Boating, Union Boat Club, and the Lagoon. The westernmost segment, referred to as Charles Gate Upper Park, extends from the Harvard Bridge west to the Boston University Bridge. After the filling of the Back Bay in the 19th century, which built today's high-end neighborhood on top of tidal mudflats, the banks of the Charles were left in a state of neglect. After several decades of slow progress, the park was dedicated as the Boston Embankment in 1910. The embankment was created as part of the construction of the 1910 Charles River Dam Bridge, today the site of the Museum of Science. Initially, the parkland was criticized for its lack of shade trees, refreshment stands, recreation facilities, transportation utility, and, as a result, its lack of visitors. To address criticism, trees were planted, a refreshment pavilion was built, and concerts were brought to the park. The Esplanade went through a major expansion from 1928 to 1936, widening and lengthening the parkland. These improvements were aided by a $1 million donation from Helen Osborne Storrow in memory of her husband, James. Renamed the Storrow Memorial Embankment, the study report tells us that the Esplanade was redesigned by Arthur Shercliffe in the 1930s when it was widened and focal areas such as the Boat Basin, Music Oval, Island, and Lagoon were added to bring new activities into the area. Other major changes included eliminating the hard-edged seawall and using a natural slope to bring the park down to the water's edge. The park was originally hot and shadeless, so trees were added throughout the park. In formal areas such as the plazas, single species were used in a grid-like pattern, while in other areas, trees were massed more informally with small areas of shrubs at focal points. The earlier, canvas-topped shade shelters were replaced by more permanent wooden ones, and a new type of bench, known as the Shercliffe Bench, was introduced. We have the Storos to thank for the transformation that made the Esplanade what it is today, and beyond this green space, their legacy lives on in many ways. Helen Osborne Storo was born in 1864 in Auburn, New York. Her parents were raised in modest circumstances, but Helen's father accumulated enough wealth to raise his daughters comfortably. David Munson Osborne's ancestors were once prosperous landowners, but they lost their fortune after the Revolution. After several failed business ventures, Osborne founded D.M. Osborne & Company in 1856 and made his fortune manufacturing agricultural machinery. Osborne served three terms as mayor of Auburn. David was a loving husband and father, but he was decidedly less progressive than his wife Eliza. He had good relations with Eliza's liberal friends and family, but he insisted that she devote her time to motherly and wifely duties rather than suffrage and abolitionist causes. Both of Eliza's parents were descended from Quakers who traveled to the New World with William Penn. 
The Wrights were ardent abolitionists whose home served as a stop on the Underground Railroad. The Wrights, and Eliza, were loyal friends of Harriet Tubman, and they helped Tubman settle in Auburn in 1860. Helen's maternal grandmother, Martha Coffin Wright, helped to organize the first suffrage convention at Seneca Falls in 1848. She prepared the final draft of Elizabeth Cady Stanton's Declaration of Sentiments and briefly served as president of the National Women's Suffrage Association before her death in 1874. Rounding out the family tree, Helen's great-aunt was Lucretia Coffin Mott, feminist, abolitionist, and Quaker minister. Eliza was destined for a life guided by social reform. Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony were regular guests in the family home. Helen met her future husband, James Jackson Storrow Sr., in 1882, while touring Europe with her relatives. They were married after a lengthy engagement in 1891. The shy and studious James was described by author Rudolph Wilson Chamberlain as unassuming but magnetic. A born leader and a keen judge of man, unassuming, yet in his quiet way exerting a strong influence over his fellows, a dominating personality. The Storrows were a well-matched pair that enjoyed an equal partnership in their relationship. In Son of New England, James Jackson Storrow, biographer Henry G. Pearson claimed that no two people ever saw more completely eye-to-eye on all things that count. Bringing his own impressive lineage into the marriage, James was descended from a long line of Boston Brahmin families, including the Jacksons, Higginsons, Tracys, and the Cabots. James graduated in 1888 from Harvard Law School, and for 12 years he was employed as a corporate lawyer. In 1900, he disbanded his law firm and accepted a position at Lee Higginson & Company, an investment bank. James proved to be an astute businessman, quickly achieving the position of senior partner and accumulating a vast personal fortune. Though he was employed by one of America's most conservative banks, James remained politically moderate and socially progressive, positions that set him at odds with other members of his social class. Unlike our current president, the Storrows rejected nativist ideology. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, anti-Catholic, anti-Semitic, and anti-immigrant views were widely embraced by the American upper class. Though, if we're being honest, those views didn't ever really go away. They just fell into the shadows for a while. In Boston, 1700 to 1980, the evolution of urban politics Constance K. Burns notes that James quickly gained a reputation among Irish Catholics for absolute fairness in the sensitive matter of hiring and promoting Boston teachers and administrators while serving on the Boston School Committee. He insisted that teachers should be hired and promoted based on merit, regardless of religious background, whereas before, Catholics had been routinely discriminated against. When James ran for re-election to the school committee in 1905, he received a ringing endorsement from the pilot, Boston's leading Irish Catholic newspaper. Mr. Storrow is a Protestant, but he has a host of friends and admirers among the Catholics, clergy and laity alike, for his philanthropy, which knows no test of religion nor of color, for his upright life, for his sincere devotion to the best interests of those citizens who most need the public schools. He will be found where he has been found heretofore, alert for the largest possible moral, material, and intellectual benefits for the neediest, 
rather than seeking to control appointments for personal or political motives. From the earliest days of their marriage, the Storos were interested in the settlement movement and charity work, helping to build playgrounds in poor immigrant neighborhoods, sponsoring night schools, vocational schools, and evening centers. James also took a keen interest in civil service reform, educational reform, and legal reform, spearheading an effort to diversify the makeup of the Boston Chamber of Commerce and helping to establish a juvenile court. James served for several years on the city council and during the First World War held the post of New England Fuel Administrator. He was largely responsible for preventing a severe coal shortage, actually using his own credit to ensure a vital shipment of coal reached the Northeast during the winter of 1917 to 1918. Helen was involved in a wide variety of charitable activities during her life. Her initial focus was on children's charities, beginning with the playground movement. Distressed by the number of children being killed and injured in accidents while playing in the streets, Boston philanthropists began constructing playgrounds. It was also hoped that if children had a proper place to play, rather than congregating in the streets, they would be less likely to become involved in gang-related criminal activities. The north end of Boston during the late 19th century was an impoverished, overcrowded neighborhood. The area suffered from the highest infant mortality rates, child mortality rates, and homicide rates in Boston. Many affluent Bostonians blamed the conditions in the North End on the residents themselves, immigrants who were predominantly Jewish and Italian. Massachusetts state legislator Edward C. Chandler voiced the opinion of many in Boston when he stated that the personal habits of the tenants are largely responsible for such conditions. Undoubtedly, many a suitable tenement house is turned into a place of misery by the ignorance and vice of its occupants. Helen rejected the notion that immigrants were inherently inferior and disliked the condescension shown by many of her peers toward immigrants. She took a genuine interest in the women and children of the North End, joining the North Bennett Industrial School's Board of Managers in 1898 and serving as secretary of the institution. The school provided classes in printing, pottery, stone carving, woodwork, wood carving, wood turning, cement work, sewing, and dressmaking. There was also an athletic club, a debating club, a drama club, music lessons, reading rooms, a kindergarten, and a nursery for infants belonging to working mothers. Helen developed a keen interest in the scouting movement after she was introduced to the founder of Scouting in America, Juliet Gordon Lowe, in 1915. Not long afterward, Helen began holding Girl Scout training courses at her summer home in Lincoln. In 1917, Helen founded the Pine Tree Camp on her property at Long Pond in Plymouth, which became the first National Girl Scout Leaders Training School. Helen served for many years as first vice president of Girl Scouts Incorporated, the National Organization of American Girl Scouts, and as chairman of the Executive Committee of Massachusetts Girl Scouts Incorporated. After the initial founding of the American Girl Scouts organization, there were numerous squabbles with the older organization of British Girl Guides, including arguments over uniforms, territorial disputes, and an unsuccessful attempt by the Girl Guides to convince the Girl Scouts to change their name, as the British organization considered the term Scout too masculine for a girls' movement. Helen responded to the latter argument by suggesting that, instead, the Girl Guides should refer to themselves as Scouts. In Fashioning the Body Politic, 
Dress, Gender, Citizenship, author Wendy Perkins includes this quote from Helen. Our name, Girl Scouts, is very dear to us and seems to us the logical name. The terms scout and scouting apply to girls and their activities as appropriately as to boys and represent the same laws and ideals. The idea that we are trying to make boys out of the girls is soon dissipated when the girls show their increased usefulness at home. The suggestion to change the name met with determined opposition from both our girls and their officers, and we shall in all probability remain scouts. I wish most heartily that we might share the same name. Would the guides consider changing? I wish they would. James Storrow's interest in the Boy Scouts mirrored his wife's interest in the girls' movement. He served as the second national president of Boy Scouts of America. Additionally, Helen and James took an interest in the Settlement House movement and helped found numerous social and charitable organizations in Boston between 1900 and 1930. Perhaps most notably, in 1903, they helped found the West End House, a club for boys, mainly immigrants, providing classes and lectures on numerous subjects, including history, literature, and physical education. Then, in 1908, the Storrows provided the boys at the West End House with a summer camp in East Parsonfield, Maine. The settlement house aimed to keep the youths in low-income immigrant neighborhoods off the streets by providing them with educational and recreational opportunities. In Being Urban, A Sociology of City Life, the authors describe some of the house's activities. A central feature of the West End House was the development of a number of athletic teams and contests. West End House teams helped to increase neighborhood solidarity through the development of a string of intra-city rivalries. The Thanksgiving Day Race was a community event in the West End. Huge crowds lined the streets to watch the boys run for neighborhood glory. Another of James's endeavors was the Boston Newsboys Club, which he helped found in 1909. The club's stated mission was to befriend in every possible way the newsboys and other boys of the city of Boston without distinction as to race, color, or creed. As with the Storrow's other clubs, it provided newsboys, the youth who were then a common sight selling newspapers on corners throughout the city, with an outlet for education and recreation, helping the boys graduate high school and in some cases to go on to university. This list barely scratches the surface of the Storrow's philanthropy, but alas, we must return to the topic at hand. James passed in 1926, and shortly thereafter, Helen donated $1 million to the state of Massachusetts to complete the development of the Charles River Basin, a project in which her husband had been involved prior to his death. The Esplanade Cultural Landscape Report by Sherry Page Berg describes the original state of the area now known as the Esplanade. The section of Boston known today as the Back Bay was part of the tidal estuary of the Charles River until the 19th century. By 1821, the mill dam had been constructed along the line of present-day Beacon Street from Boston Common to Sewell's Point in Brookline, later known as Kenmore Square. It was 1.5 miles long, 50 feet wide, and enclosed 600 acres of the Back Bay, known as the Receiving Basin. By 1849, the Boston Board of Health described the Back Bay as a nuisance, offensive and injurious to the large and increasing population residing upon it. In 1852, a legislative commission was established to determine the future of the Back Bay. 
it recommended curtailment of industrial development and established a plan for filling the area, beginning in 1857. Streets were laid out in a grid-like pattern, and over the next three decades, the area was gradually filled and developed, moving from east to west. The granite seawall adjacent to Back Street, the alley behind the Beacon Street houses, formed the northern edge of the newly created Back Bay neighborhood. While the Back Bay was primarily residential, the Beacon Hill Flat and West End waterfronts to the east were more industrial in the 19th century, with warehouses, docks, and a network of bridges leading to East Cambridge. The Charles River remained tidal and polluted, a source of increasing irritation to Back Bay residents, particularly at low tide. To address the blight, several proposals were made in the 1870s to create recreational space along the riverbank with walkways and carriage paths. Inspiration was drawn from the Ulster Basin in Hamburg and Olmsted's work in the Finway. However, movement was blocked by the wealthy residents along the north side of Beacon Street who didn't want their views to be obstructed. Never mind that the view was of a polluted and fetid basin that offered no aesthetic value. It was literally an open sewer held at bay by a granite seawall. Resistance to positive change is a common theme in prosperous neighborhoods. An 1893 report from the newly established Metropolitan Parks Commission described a vision for a much-improved basin. The Metropolitan District is now in a position to make for itself, whenever it may so desire, a river park, which, with its bordering drives, will extend six miles west from the State House. The broad basin, surrounded as it will be by handsome promenades, is destined to become the central court of honor of the Metropolitan District, while by building a dam which shall exclude the tides, the pleasing scenery of the Freshwater River, with all its delightful opportunities for boating and skating, may be brought downstream to the central basin itself. And it's worth noting that in 1893 there was already a proposal to include a roadway along the river as a pleasure drive, but also to increase vehicular access to the city. Throughout the 1890s, the MPC made significant land acquisitions upstream on the Charles. However, the commission failed to purchase the southern bank of the Charles along the basin, assuming that the Boston Park Commission would take responsibility. James Storrow's involvement with the land began with the question of whether a dam was needed. Sherry Page Berg's report continues, The proposal to construct a Charles River dam languished for several years until James Jackson Storrow campaigned for a new commission, which was appointed in 1901. Harvard President Charles W. Eliot, father of the landscaped architect, spoke eloquently in favor of the dam, arguing that the principal reason for the improvement of the basin was to increase the health and happiness of 400,000 people who lived within walking distance of the river. Storrow's successful campaign resulted in the appointment of John Ripley Freeman, a well-respected engineer, to address the technical question of the proposed dam. Freeman's thorough scientific approach was presented in a 1903 report that argued strongly in favor of the dam on the grounds that it would improve sanitary conditions, that the interests of navigation and manufacturing would benefit, that the harbor would not be adversely affected, and that a magnificent opportunity for wholesome recreation and the enjoyment of a more beautiful landscape will be made possible by the construction of this dam. He also made the argument that building the dam would actually be no more expensive than addressing the various infrastructure issues separately. 
Once Freeman's report established the benefits of the Charles River Dam, the state legislature authorized construction that same year and established the Charles River Basin Commission to oversee the project. The dam was a broad earthen structure of concrete retaining walls faced with granite, on which a seven-acre park was laid out, where the Boston Museum of Science is currently located. The basin construction also included a strip of parkland that was 300 feet wide between Longfellow Bridge and Brimmer Street, and 100 feet wide west of Brimmer Street. While Charles Bank was visually a part of the Esplanade, it remained city parkland. The Charles River Basin Commission was also authorized to expand the park from the Longfellow Bridge to Charles Gate, creating what we think of today as the Esplanade. Land was created north of the seawall up to 300 feet at the widest part of the park. On July 1, 1910, the park was turned over to the MPC. At this point, the land was little more than a field of grass with a walkway and streetlights. The area lacked shade, as the residents of Beacon Street continued to protest the plantings of trees which might, one day, decades in the future, block their views of the river. Linda M. Cox in the Charles River Esplanade, Our Boston Treasure, describes the success of the project. The finished promenade of grass and concrete walkways was popularly called the Esplanade, a French word for a flat promenade along a shore. And Esplanade it's been ever since, no matter what the official name. But this promenade, albeit delightful, was not the water park Elliot and Storo and others had dreamed of. Where were the people, especially the children? Only an occasional figure braves the glitter and heat of the sunlight on the unprotected esplanade, said one critic. Where were the boats? It turned out that the new Boston shore actually discouraged boating because the perpendicular seawall made the waves rougher than before. Except for college crews, few boats braved the basin. Critics came from all ranks. In the summer of 1911, Mayor John Fitzgerald, just returned from a trip to Europe, told a press conference that, the comparison between the popular uses of the Charles River and the Ulster Basin is really a shame to Boston. Fitzgerald and others, in the October 1911 issue of New Boston, proposed such solutions as shade trees, boathouses, band concerts, fireworks, and riverside cafes to attract more people to the Esplanade. Lots of complaints and suggestions, but no action. This pattern continued for almost two decades and might never have ended without the generosity of Helen Storrow. In April 1928, the legislature authorized a commission to investigate and make recommendations for making the basin more suitable for recreation and civic welfare. Their suggestions included widening and extending the esplanade. A key proposal was widening the esplanade on the Boston side from Charles Bank to Charles Gate, extending the park further west to the Cottage Farm, or the Boston University Bridge. The land was to be brought down to the water's edge and have pebbled beaches rather than a seawall. The edge was also to be gently undulating rather than straight. The new area would be covered with loam, planted with shrubs and trees, and have numerous walkways. Playgrounds and Bathing Beaches the park at Charles Bank was to be expanded from 9.6 to 15.4 acres and was to have a wading pool, a swimming pool, and bathhouses. Landing and Plaza 
The report proposed a landing for boats and a decorative plaza with terraces and fountains where people could congregate and outdoor concerts of high-grade music could be given. Parkways Planning studies had long recommended that there be continuous parkways along both sides of the Charles River Basin, from the dam to Watertown Square. The section between the Longfellow Bridge and the Cottage Farm Bridge was one of the missing links in 1929 and was considered to be the highest priority. The dual goal was to create a parkway along the river and to alleviate congestion on city streets. The proposal was to place the parkway at least 150 feet from the rear of the houses and to create additional parkland on the water side that was roughly 200 feet wide, double the width of the existing parkland. The commission also suggested that the parkway be depressed below grade so that it would not be visible from the rest of the esplanade. Widening of Charles Street and creation of traffic circle. Another proposal involved the widening of Charles Street adjacent to the Charles Bank Park, which would necessitate some taking of parkland in that area. Related to that was the creation of a traffic circle at the junction of Charles and Cambridge Streets, an area that was already seriously congested. And finally, boating. The primary limitations to the use of the river for boating were determined to be the choppy water and lack of facilities. The elimination of the embankment wall on the Boston side and the widening of the embankment with a sloping beach that would absorb wave action were seen as important steps toward improving water conditions in the basin. At this point in the story, controversy begins. Prior to the completion of the report in 1929, Helen Storrow made her million-dollar gift in 1928. Her stipulation was that the gift be used to carry out the beautification work that was to be approved by the legislature. If I was making that gift, I might wait to see the proposed scope of work before signing the check. The report was broadly embraced, with the exception of the parkway. Helen Storrow, and many others, strongly objected to its construction, and as a result, it was dropped from the project. Detailing the enhancements, Cox writes, The centerpiece, the Storrow Lagoon, is perhaps most easily identified as the large, formal lagoon where sunbathers now congregate. Located mostly between Exeter and Fairfield streets, it measures about 240 feet wide and 1,000 feet long. Narrow openings at each end, spanned by ornamental footbridges, permit water to circulate. The lagoon was designed for toy boat sailing, ice skating, and small pleasure craft. Model boat racing and skating proved so popular, in fact, that an elaborate model boathouse and recreation building, now lost to Storrow Drive, was built in the late 30s. Shercliffe's design also included a greatly enlarged lawn for the summer concerts initiated in 1929 by Arthur Fiedler, a 34-year-old violinist with the Boston Symphony Orchestra. The Music Oval, near the foot of Mount Vernon Street, was extended a further 150 feet into the river and landscaped with linden trees and shrubs. In 1934, the original wooden concert shell, dismantled at the end of each season, was replaced by a new steel structure, also temporary, that proved insufferably hot. The hatch shell, a permanent granite structure, was built in 1940 with funds left by Maria Hatch in memory of her brother, Edward. In September 1936, the Storrow Memorial Embankment was formally dedicated. Three years later, 
Three 10-foot-tall bronze markers were erected along the esplanade to formally mark the change in name. But the new name never caught on. Esplanade was just too familiar and rolled off the tongue much more easily. Only one of the three markers, easily overlooked, remains today, on David Mugar Way near the Arthur Fiedler Bridge. While this must have felt like a happy ending for Helen Storrow, the congestion in Boston streets increased significantly in the 1940s, with some neighborhoods regularly experiencing hours of gridlock. Just five years after Helen's death, the plan for a roadway from the BU Bridge to the Longfellow Bridge was back on the table. After contentious campaigning on both sides, the legislature passed the plan by a single vote. As a consolation prize, funding was approved to replace the land that was lost to the highway. Shercliffe, now 80, worked with his son to redesign the park. Cox writes, The Shercliffs devised a brilliant and simple solution to replace the lost parkland. They lengthened the outer barrier of the existing lagoon, creating a new, undulating island connected to the original shoreline by footbridges, making a series of lagoons that now extend to the hatch shell. On the western part of the esplanade, between the Harvard and BU bridges, a new undulating shoreline replaced the straight one. More trees, shrubs, and grass were planted everywhere. While these improvements added value to the esplanade, something significant was lost. Easy pedestrian access and a natural connection to the adjacent neighborhoods. The new roadway, named Storo Drive in ironic honor of the couple who so vocally opposed its construction, makes a visit to the Esplanade a tactical journey rather than a pleasant stroll down the street. Today, the Esplanade, which closely resembles the Shercliffe's 1950s revision, is maintained by the Esplanade Association. The privately funded nonprofit works to revitalize and embrace the Charles River Esplanade, sustain its natural green space, and build community in the park by providing educational, cultural, and recreational programs for everyone. Working in collaboration with the Massachusetts Department of Conservation and Recreation, the Esplanade Association is dedicated to improving the experiences of the millions of visitors who enjoy Boston's iconic Riverside Park. To learn more about the history of the Esplanade, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 087. We'll have links to the Landmark Study Report, the Esplanade Cultural Landscape Report by Sherry Page Berg, and the Charles River Esplanade, Our Boston Treasure by Linda M. Cox. These reports are full of historic photos, diagrams of the projects, and maps. We'll also suggest some books if you want to dig deeper. And, of course, we'll have links to information about this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. Don't forget that History Camp Boston is coming up on July 7th. History Camp is a unique event that democratizes the concept of a history conference. You don't have to be a historian or a professor to attend. Everyone is welcome, and there are great sessions by well-known historians, including plenty of people we've quoted on the show. Jake will be speaking as part of a history podcasting panel that features some of the biggest names in the business. Mick Sullivan from The Past and the Curious, Edward O'Donnell of In the Past Lane, Liz Covart, who started Ben Franklin's World, 
and the world-famous Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. We'll have Hub History stickers, and we hope to meet some of our listeners between sessions. In addition, Jake will be leading a special tour of the Back Bay focused on the process of constructing a fancy neighborhood out of a stagnant salt marsh on the Sunday after History Camp. You can get the details, read about the other great sessions that will be offered, and register to attend at historycamp.org boston. If you'd like to leave us some feedback, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. You may have heard that Google announced a new Google Podcasts app for Android a couple of weeks ago. In case you were wondering, yes, we are on the new Google Podcasts app. We're also on Google Play Music, which still exists for some reason. We're on Stitcher, Pocket Casts, TuneIn Radio, Player FM, and all your favorite podcast apps. If we're not listed on your favorite app, write in and let us know. Except for Spotify. We're still working on getting listed on Spotify. You can also listen on your favorite smart speaker. If you have an Amazon Echo, just say, Alexa, play the Hub History podcast. Or if you have a Google Home, you can say, Hey Google, play the Hub History podcast. Sure, playing the latest episode of Hub History, our favorite stories from Boston history, the Battle of Jamaica Plain, episode 79. For all that, Apple Podcasts is still where most people listen to podcasts. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider rating and reviewing us. Or just tell a friend. Those are the best ways to help new listeners discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week to talk about the wreck of the Mary O'Hara. (laughs) 